Okay, so in the last video, uh, we kind of ended before we could get uh, into discussing the issue of Jacob and Esau, which is a pretty important uh, part of this whole chapter as it regards the whole debate that goes on between um, the different views on this chapter. Um, the part, the when it brings up Jacob and Esau, you know that's obviously a significant part, and a, a part where a lot of people um, struggle with it, get confused about it, don't understand what it's, what is he really trying to say when he says that God hated Esau, and and, uh, and really I think um, going back to what I was talking about last time, I think this is one of the significant places where we're following along with Paul's argument, uh, we're following along with his focus of faith on on track with him and then at this point I think this is a significant point where we can derail and start to misinterpret misapply misunderstand what he's really getting at with bringing up um, Isaac or bringing up Jacob and Esau here and so um, and, and again if we do that I think we miss Christ we miss this the focus on Christ in this chapter the focus of the gospel um, the focus of salvation by faith and ultimately, we, we end up at an inaccurate understanding of God's sovereignty here um, is what can happen. And so um, I wanted to get back into uh, this and, and tackle that issue. Um, first, just again, a quick review. Um, I, I review I'm, I'm wanting to review like this because it is so important, I think, to stay on track with Paul. It is hard to follow. Um, again, I've said this multiple times already, but what Peter says, I think there's a reason that the Spirit inspired and in, in the scriptures that we hold as inspired by God, that, that one of the, the lines that Peter says about Paul is that some of the things he writes are hard to understand. Um, and so I think this is one of those. Uh, and, and maybe he was even referencing Romans 9 when he wrote that, who knows. But um, but the, the purpose, I'm, I want to review real quick, we just get back kind of to where we're at. Um, so that we are making sure that we are staying in track, in, in step with, with Paul's uh, line of reasoning with his argumentation in this chapter. So again, the, the point here is that the Jews are offended. He's, he's uh, knowing that, that what he's saying, Paul's knowing that what he's saying here is going to offend the Jews. They're going to have questions. And ultimately, they're going to think God is unfaithful to his promises because Paul's claiming that they're being cut off from Christ. They're being cut off from the promises and actually now being blinded and hardened um, by God and used to, uh, and their hardening is going to be used ultimately for the salvation of the Gentiles so that mercy can be shown to them. And so all this information that Paul is giving is he's preemptively knowing that it's going to result in the Jews saying, how is that fair? How is that right? And how does that not make God unfaithful to his promises to us? You know, we're Israelites, a part of Israel. God made promises to Israel. And now you're saying those promises aren't going to come to pass. So basically Paul's explaining how that can be true while at the same time God is not unfaithful or a liar. And so his answer for that is that um, that there are, again, there's these two categories. There, he says that it is not the children of the flesh. So children of the flesh, that's the one category. Um, who are children of God, but the children of the promise um, are regarded as offspring. And so, again, what Paul's arguing for, what he's going to, the argument he's going to use to explain why God is not unfaithful, even though his promises are not coming true for, for the majority of the nation of Israel, and the majority of the nation of Israel, you know, Israel as a whole is actually being hardened and cut off and blinded and used now as an instrument to bring mercy to the Gentiles. Um, and the reason why God can do that and not be lying about all the promises that he had given Israel is because he says that, that there are true children of Israel, there are not true children of Israel. There are those who are attached to Israel simply and only by the flesh, and there are those who are true Israel in the sense of uh, they're Israel according to the Spirit. And in God's eyes, he, he sees these people, this category of people, as those who he had ultimately and originally made the promises to. 
And so Paul's defense of, of God here really is that God had never intended his promises to be for the children of the flesh, simply DNA uh, descendants of Abraham. Those were not the ones that God had originally made the promises when he did make the promises. And so the fact that now Israel as a nation is not inheriting these promises and are cut off from them, that doesn't make God unfaithful because God never intended his promises for them, for every individual descendant of Israel or DNA uh, child of Abraham. God never intended the promises for them. He intended the promises for those who are true children of God, for those who are true children of Abraham. And so, uh, so Paul's defense of God ultimately is, no, God is not a liar. God's promises have not failed because God never made his promises to you guys, actually. He never made his promises to all Israel, but he had a certain category of people that he is making his promises to. That category is true children of Abraham. And so what comes from that, the obvious question is, okay, so who are these true children of Abraham? Who are they? What makes a person the true child of Abraham, true Israel? And what makes a person Israel simply according to the flesh? Really, that's the that's what, what the debate comes down to between uh, Reformed uh, theology, Calvinism, and, and an alternative view is, is what makes a child of Abraham a child of Abraham. And again, that's where the split roads would be, where the Calvinists would say, well, a child of Abraham uh, is, is simply um, those who God chooses. It, it's, it's, it's a sovereign and mysterious choice of God that he, before, you know, he, before the foundations of the earth, he chose who he would save and who he would not save. He had to elect people, and those he would save, he created for that purpose of saving. Um, and those who would not be saved, he created for the purpose of, um, of putting his judgment on and, and displaying his wrath and his power. So, so that's the road, the uh, a really rough uh, description of the road, I think, Calvinism would take, um, and and uh, and and the other road, you know, would be okay. Again, answering the question: Who who are children of of promise? Who are children of Abraham? The road I'm taking, and the road I think Paul actually takes, is to say that it's those of faith. He he's and again he's he's not getting into the argument of how a person has faith. Whether is that all the work of God? Uh, is that does man have free will here? Um, does is it something man has to to, you know, choose or work up or, you know, I know, again, I'm preemptively knowing the arguments that would immediately come to somebody's mind um, from, from a reform position when they hear this. And I can sympathize with that and relate to some of those questions. Um, but, but that's just simply, again, that's not on the table here as far as what Paul's actually discussing. And so we shouldn't even, <laughs> honestly, we shouldn't even think about that at this point. What we know is that children of the flesh are those who um, who rely on works of the law, like Paul says in Galatians. Children of the flesh are those who, uh, who get into the mode of Abraham and Sarah when they produced Ishmael, and they were unbelieving God and his promises, and so they attempted to do for themselves what God had promised to do for them. And that's, that's a, an absolute picture of trying to attain righteousness by human effort and human works and, and trying to do for yourself what God has promised to do for you. Try, you know, us trying to become righteous, become sanctified, trying to get rid of our sin when God has promised to do all of those things for us as we simply rest in him by faith. And so what's clear here, uh, what, what is made clear again is not the issue of who, who chooses or, or, Who's the uh, decisive cause, I guess, of faith is the way I've heard it put. Who's the decisive cause of a person's faith? That's not up on the table at this point. What is clear is that children of Abraham are the ones who God made his promises to. And mere DNA descendants of Abraham, descendants according to the flesh, children of Abraham, merely according to the flesh, God never intended his uh, promises for these, this category of people. It was always intended for children of Abraham, 
which we know clearly from other scriptures, who are the children of Abraham, who are true children of Abraham, who is true Israel, uh, what makes a person uh, in that category? Well, it's, it's those of faith. Uh, and Galatians says that very clearly spells that out in Galatians 3, 7, where Paul says, know then or understand then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, those of faith. That is the distinguishing mark of what makes a person in this, in this context, either a child of the flesh or a child of promise. It has nothing to do with a, um, you, there's just no reason to go to a Calvinistic deterministic view at this point of, okay, a child of Abraham is somebody God has simply uh, sovereignly chosen before the foundations of the earth. That's not here. Um, I'll say, yeah, you know, I'll give the benefit of the doubt at this point because we're not completely through the chapter. But at this point, what we clearly know, if we just honestly look at the other scriptures, what makes a child of Abraham a child of Abraham is faith. And I like the ver the New Living Translation says, the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. And so that's, that's what's up for debate here. That's the whole question is, okay, Paul's defense of God and his defense of why God is still faithful, even though the promises to Israel are not coming true, is that there are children of promise, there are true children of Abraham, who God actually originally intended the promises for. And so those are the people who, who are still getting the faithful promises of God, which opens up the question that we've been looking at, who are these, who, who are the true children of Abraham, how do they get to be how do we become true children of Abraham? The obvious answer, the clear scriptural, scripturally backed answer, uh, Galatians 3, 7, know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It does not say it's those whose God is simply determined. It's those who God has sovereignly elected before the foundations of the world. It's those of faith. That's, that's what we know for sure at this point. So, so then again, in the last video, we got into uh, the, the issue of the son that, that um, he's now he's uh, in, in another way, he's going to answer this question of who are the children of promise? Who are the true children of Abraham who God has intended the, all of his promises for? And so he says, for this is the word of promise. So it's the word of promise that makes children of promise, right? It's God's word of promise. Um, he's obviously, this is connected, um, and he's, he's saying, so he brings up the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, and Ishmael ultimately too is in this, um, even though his name isn't um, actually brought up. But he says, at this time I will come, Sarah shall have a son, which was Isaac, and we saw in Galatians last time um, that, that Isaac is the one who is called a child of promise, and Paul says, Paul says to the believers in Galatians, he says, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's actually in Galatians 4.28, where he, he tells them, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. And so again, we know Galatians is so significant in understanding what Paul is trying to get at in Romans 9. And we know Galatians is, the whole debate is is uh, faith versus works. And and so he's he's trying to encourage the believers here when he says, you like Isaac, like the son here. That's the son that's being referenced here in Romans 9. Uh, in Romans 9, 9, he, again, Paul's explaining who are the true children of Abraham, who are children of promise. And he's saying it's, it's those like Isaac. Uh, it, it's, it's those who are like this son here who I'm referencing to. Um, and Isaac, we know, was how did he come about? How was he produced? He came by faith. Um, he was a child of promise in the sense that he came as a result of Abraham and Sarah's faith in God and their even you know even though they faltered and they stumbled in unbelief he he ultimately got fulfilled that promise and Abraham and Sarah uh, as Hebrews says continued to believe God for that promise and Abraham believed God and I think it's Romans 4 even though he, him and Sarah they, they were as good as dead they still believed in God's faithfulness um, and so that is what it means. Again, we, we see clearly that what it means in that context to be a child of promise, a child of promise is one who comes as, as a result of faith. And so to be a child of promise, uh, it's all about faith. It's all about you relating to God on the basis of faith and not on the basis of works. Um, and so that's the difference between Isaac and Ishmael is that Ishmael, 
was a result of unbelief. Ishmael was a result of Sarah and Abraham's unbelief in God. Um, and so they, they got impatient and they, they uh, didn't believe in God's faithfulness. They didn't believe that God was going to uh, come through. And so is that those moments where in stark contrast with, you know, places like Romans four, where it says they, you know, Abraham didn't even consider uh, his own body, even though it was as good as dead. And, and Sarah, even though she was barren, he didn't consider that, but he just judged God faithful. Really the, the, the season in their life of Ishmael was a, you know, completely opposite of that. And Ishmael came out, he came to be as a result of unbelief. He was a child, really, of unbelief. In opposition to being a child of promise, Ishmael was a child of, of unbelief and lack of confidence in God's character and goodness. And so that's why, you know, God said to Abraham and, and Sarah, he said, cast out the bondwoman and her son, because the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the, the son of the free woman, right? And that, that's uh, quoted in Galatians also. And so that's another way of God saying, look, I've, I've, chosen, I've chosen the way through which you will obtain my promises and my blessing. The way through which you will obtain what I've, what I've promised and the blessing that you so strongly desire, which in Abraham and Sarah's case was children. He says the way through which you get that blessing and favor and grace, it comes through faith. Um, and so when he says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free. He's just simply saying, I haven't chosen unbelief and works of the law. You can give me all of your efforts. You can put forth all of your energy. You can do all that you can do to, to accomplish the things that I've promised to accomplish for you. And, and at the end of the day, what I'm going to say is cast it out, throw it away, throw it out. It, there's, it's no good. It has no value before me, and there's no eternal value in it because it all came forth from you. It all came forth as a result of your own uh, self-dependence as a, as a work of the flesh, which is a picture of works-based living before God. And, and that's why Paul emphasizes that so strongly in Galatians. It's a picture of a works-based, performance-based, legalistic, slave mentality uh, relation to God and trying to get to him on the basis of what you can bring to the table. And what God says is, I haven't chosen that. I have not chosen to bless that. Cast it out, he says. Cast it out. And what the one who's going to inherit blessing is Isaac, the son, the, you know, the son born according to, to promise. He is the one who gets my blessing. He's the one I've chosen. Okay. And so this is so much about God's sovereignty. All of this is about God's sovereignty. Obviously, God chose Isaac over Ishmael. But when he did that, was what was he trying to communicate to us through that when he did that? Okay, I've chosen Isaac. That means I created him before the foundation of the world. I chose to create him for the purpose of salvation. And I chose to create Ishmael for the purpose of eternal destruction. Do we get that from the Bible? Can we honestly look at the Bible and say, that's what he was trying to communicate to us through those stories, or that's what Paul is communicating in some form in Galatians or even here. That's just not, not it. Maybe you could, you could insert that in if you really want to find it. Um, you know, you could, you can make it say that, but I don't believe it really says that. I think the point what Paul's focusing on is it's it's just that simple uh, that simple issue. He's Paul kind of has a one track mind of faith in Christ versus versus works. Uh, Jesus is the only way of salvation, and his explanation for that. And and, um, and so I think that's what we get from these so far from the the idea of Isaac and Ishmael, um, Sarah and Abraham. And so, so let's go on in, in, uh, in verse 10. It says, and not only this, so not only this story of Isaac and Ishmael and Sarah and Abraham, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her. And here again, we're going to see that he, Paul makes categories again. 
And all these categories he's making are just tied back to the categories he makes at the beginning of the chapter. When he contrasts fleshly descendants of Abraham with spirit, with true spiritual descendants of Abraham. And so at this point, he's going to do that same thing again when he brings up Jacob and Esau. And so he says the older, which was Esau, right? Here's the first category. The older will serve the younger. So here's those categories. So, which again ties into, so the first category, the older, Esau. So he'd be in the category of children of the flesh. That Esau is a picture, uh, a spiritual picture of those who are merely uh, uh, Israelite according to the flesh. He's a picture of the flesh, of uh, unbelief, really. And, and Hebrews even calls him a profane person who was he was godless and and he didn't he didn't have a fear of the Lord. He didn't value the things of God and ultimately traded his birthright for one. Uh, one, you know, measly bowl of, of stew or whatever it was. And so what he pictures for us is, is the flesh, that part of us that, uh, that doesn't believe God, that doesn't trust him, that doesn't value him. And Jacob, he's that picture here of, of valuing the Lord, that picture of faith, that picture of, you know, he wrestled with God and ultimately he, um, he gave up and he, he learned uh, surrender to God. He learned reliance on God. And so I think Jacob and Esau are a stark contrast. Again, Paul brings it up to contrast, um, not, uh, not ultimately the, the predetermined, you know, Calvinistically elect versus the Calvinistically non-elect, but to contrast those who approach God on the basis of the flesh or on the basis of works and those who approach God on the basis of faith. And so I'll explain a little bit more why I think that's clearly what's going on here. So think about this. He says, uh, the older, right? The older uh, will serve the younger. So Esau was the older, right? So by all human standards, by all human wisdom, the older brother should have got the blessing. He should have been the one chosen by God. But even before they were born, God said, I choose not the older one, not the stronger one, not the more manly one, not the one by who by all human standards should be first in first place, but what I choose is the younger one. This is just another way where God is saying, you know, the, what he says all the time. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so it's the weak, it's the, the person without strength, it's the person who by all human standards should not be first, who should not receive God's favor. Those are actually the ones God has chosen. First Corinthians, I think, explains this and is a great example of, of uh, what, what's being communicated here by the illustrations of Jacob and Esau. So First Corinthians 1, 20 through 31 says, where is the wise person? Um, and so again, here's these, here's these categories. Where is the wise person according to the flesh? Where is the teacher of the law? Here's the strength and the, the human wisdom, what man has to bring to the table. Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world... So this is all, again, this is worldly strength. This is human wisdom. This is uh, another, uh, another uh, way of saying, you know, the human strength and effort and energy and willpower and, and what man has to bring to the table. But in the wisdom of God, uh, the world through its wisdom, through its own wisdom, did not know God. Um, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So there's a foolishness to the message preached to, to the human mind, to human understanding. Um, but this is what God has chosen. And then verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Again, at the end of Romans 9, I think we saw in the first video, um, and we'll see again when we get to the end of the chapter um, that it says that the Jews have stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
Um, and so what is the stumbling stone? Well, the stumbling stone here we see is, is the simple foolish message of faith in Christ as a way of salvation. Um, that that's foolishness to the Gentile or to the Jew who, who wants to bring something to the table. Um, and it's easy for the self-righteous person to stumble over the gospel because it's the gospel is so simple and it requires that we do nothing but, but believe while self-righteousness wants to actually do something. It wants to add something. Self-righteousness wants to do its own part. While God says the foolishness of the gospel is that he doesn't require us to do anything. Um, it, it's just all by our belief and our faith in him. And so it says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Here's a lot of Jacobs. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were firstborn sons <laughs> is another way of saying this. Jacob was the secondborn, right? Who again, by all human standards, should not have been first in God's mind, should not have received God's favor. But God chose him as a picture that what he chooses in the world turns human wisdom and human standards upside down. God chose not the firstborn son, Esau. God chose the secondborn son, Jacob. And so this is, this is him saying that in another way in 1 Corinthians. He's saying not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So by all human standards, Paul says to the Corinthians, um, you should have been in last place. By all human standards, you should not be inheriting the promises of God. By all human standards, you should not be righteous and accepted by God because you're, you're, no, you're weak, you're foolish, you're, you're, uh, you're not anything special. And that's Jacob. That was Jacob, his case, being the secondborn son. Again, God choosing him over Esau is a picture of how he chooses the things that are weak. And that's what he says right here. It says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things. God chose the Jacobs. God chose the Isaacs, the Isaacs who, who came as a result of, of absolute human weakness and inability. Isaac came about as a, as a result of Abraham and Sarah's dead bodies who had zero to bring to the table. All they could do is just is say, God, you said this is going to happen, and so we believe it. And they, and, and they did nothing to help God bring about Isaac. And that is the weak thing of the world. But God uses those kind of things, those kind of people, to shame the strong. And in the case of Romans 9, what this looks like is God choosing the Gentiles, uh, the Gentiles in the world, um, who are coming to God on the basis, simply on the basis of faith, who are coming as dirty sinners who don't have all these things that the Jews have to bring to the table before God. They don't, they don't have a DNA connection to Abraham. It, the promises weren't made to their, uh, to their nationalities. They don't have the, the law and the promises. The Messiah didn't come through the, their lines. Uh, and, and so, so they have nothing, you know, they're, they're in second place, just like, just like Jacob was, just like uh, Isaac was, in the sense that there is no human reason why he should have even been alive. And in this sense, uh, that's, it says that's the people that, of the world, the things of the world that God has chosen. Um, and so in this sense, the Jews who are coming to God with their strength, um, they're coming to God with their law keeping, with their self-righteousness, with all these things that by all human standards should impress God. You know, by all human wisdom, it should be, you know, we would expect uh, God to, to look at that and be impressed and to say, well, if you're going to do all that, well, yeah, I'll bless you. But that's just not the way God works. But rather, he chooses those who come to him with nothing. Um, he chooses here, uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians 1, 28, he chooses chose the lowly things. And, and, and I think, in my opinion, this is all, you know, these are all synonyms of faith. He chose belief. Faith is the weak thing. Belief is the weak thing. Um, faith is something that in the Bible is always, it's contrasted with works. 
faith is never described as a work. Faith is never said to be, you know, if you bring faith to the table, then you're bringing something. But if we have an accurate biblical understanding of what faith is, then we'll understand that to bring faith to God, that to believe him when he provides his word and provides the, the ability to believe in what he's spoken to us, the light he's given, when we believe, uh, we're not bringing anything to the table. But biblically, bringing faith to the table equals bringing nothing to the table. That's the biblical way to look at it. And so God chose that. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things. Jacob, again, we're, we're talking about Jacob and Esau. So Jacob, being the second born, would, by the human standards of those days, been the despised, the ignored thing, the lesser important thing. Um, and and he, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Um, and so again, in the context of Romans 9, the things that are in this context uh, would be the strong things of law-keeping, the strong things of self-righteousness, of DNA connection to Abraham, all these things the Jews were bringing to God and now offended because God was saying, I don't accept that, I don't want that, and actually I choose this. I choose the Gentiles who are coming merely on the basis of faith. And he says he does that so that no one may boast before him. So going back to Romans 9, the older, Esau, is that picture, again, of strength. He's the picture of, uh, of what, uh, what a human would have to bring to the table before God, of self-effort, willpower, self-reliance, which all ultimately, uh, what all those things ultimately mean is a lack of confidence in God, a lack of belief that he's going to get done what he's promised, just like just like Abraham and Sarah did in that, in that season when they produced Ishmael. Um, while the younger, Jacob, again, is that picture of, of the foolishness, uh, the foolishness of simply accepting the gospel. The foolishness in 1 Corinthians is, is what? It's, it's the con- what's contrasted with the, the wise thing, according to human standards. The wise thing would be uh, the Jews who, who are attempting to come to God with their strength. The foolish thing is those who simply believe in the gospel, who simply believe like Abraham did. That's the foolish thing. That's what the younger, that's what Jacob here is a represent, a spiritual analogy of going back to what Paul says when he spells it out for us in Galatians, when he brings up examples from the Old Testament, when he's dealing with this issue of faith versus works, and he spells it out for us in Galatians 4.24, where he says, these things are to be taken figuratively, or they're an illustration, they're to be taken allegorically. Um, so they're, they're illustrations, they're spiritual illustrations, he says. That's what Isaac was, and, and I think it's, it's fair to say that's what Jacob and Esau are. He's bringing these up as, as spiritual illustrations, and Jacob serves as the same illustration as Isaac. That it's not an illustration, it's not, it's, it's not an example, I guess, of... A, uh, of an unconditionally elect according to a, a Calvinistic understanding. Um, and, and Esau is, would, would stand in the same category. He's the same spiritual illustration as uh, Ishmael was, which was an example, who was an example and an allegory of, of human unbelief and human effort and energy, and ultimately of self-righteousness. And that completely makes sense in this whole context when we see that what Paul's dealing with is the same issue in, in a different form, but it's the same issue as Galatians, where he's dealing with people who are so bound up in their minds with, with, the, uh, the con- with a works-based mentality, sort of with the law, with, with, uh, with the importance of, of their uh, Israelite descent, and which all are important things, and they're all blessed things, as Paul says at the beginning, but, but, uh, but they misunderstand that, that they misunderstood that it's those things that are giving them uh, righteousness before God, and that's their fault. That's, what's, that's really what's screwing them up, and that's what this whole thing is about. And I think, again, as we're looking at Galatians, it's so uh, important to look at Galatians when trying to understand Romans 9. And I think it makes it so clear what Paul is really trying to get at here. Um, And so then he goes on in Romans 9, 14, he says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? 
So is God unjust that, you know, this is kind of similar to me of of the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain brought his offering to God, Abel brought his offering to God, God accepted Abel's, and we know, you know, multiple places in the New Testament that describe Abel as having faith. So in some way, um, when Abel brought his offering to God, he was doing it by faith. What he was really offering to God wasn't anything but his faith and trust and reliance on God. That's why Abel's offering was accepted. But Cain brought to God an offering too. It wasn't like Cain was just like, no, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I hate you. I'm going to go live in sin. That, that wasn't Cain's mindset. I think Cain's mindset was the exact mindset of the Jews in this context in Romans 9, where they were bringing God an offering in sincerity. They wanted God's favor. They wanted God's acceptance. Cain wanted that from God, I believe. And so they brought just like just like Israel is doing here in Romans 9, that Cain brought God an offering. But where was where did that offering come from? Remember? It's an offering from the, the fruit of the ground, right? It came from the ground. God cursed the ground, if you remember that. And it, uh, when Adam and Eve fell, he cursed the ground, right? And so, so in some way, what Cain was doing, I think, was a, a picture and an act of of uh, human uh, effort and energy, just like all these other things we're, we're seeing, all these other pictures, where what Cain was doing was trying to bring forth from the ground that God had cursed, and in the same way God has cursed, you know, in a sense, our flesh, and anything we try to bring to him from the flesh is cursed. It's filthy rags. God can't accept it. But Cain was trying to bring to God an offering, bring it forth from that place, um, where God had cursed and God didn't accept it. That's exactly what the Jews are doing. It's not that they're not sincere. It's not that they don't actually want God's favor. It's not that they're actually not, they're not actually trying or putting forth effort. They are, they absolutely are. Um, Israel is in this, in this context, but, but God is still saying, I don't accept that. I don't accept what you're bringing to me, but I do accept the Gentiles, what they're bringing to me. And, and that is what is just driving these guys insane, um, that, that's so offensive to them. And they're saying, and that's what Paul is preemptively uh, knowing is going to come, is that the Jews here are seeing God accepting the Gentiles' offering of faith and accepting them, while they're bringing their law-keeping and their, 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 you know, all the things we've listed over and over, being a part of Israel. They're bringing everything that belongs to that. And God's still saying, I don't accept that. I don't want that. And, and even though you're, you continue to bring that to me, you've, you've not accepted my way. And so now, rather than accept your offering, I'm actually going to blind you and harden you and use you to, uh, to accomplish uh, mercy and salvation for the Gentiles. So you can see, you don't need a, a, even a Calvinistic determinism here to see what the offense would be of the Jews, why they're offended, why these questions are rising up. Because even for a modern-day self-righteous person who would work their whole life and do all they can do to try to, to, to please God, and you know, still you can do that your whole life and not find God's favor— and uh, human wisdom would say, man, that's not fair. That's not right. God, I tried my best. I did everything I could. But what God sees is he looks at the heart and says, you didn't believe the promises I'd given. You didn't believe the light. You didn't accept and embrace the, the offer that I was holding out. But you, you um, just like the Jews, you ignored it. And, and you didn't accept that invitation, but you chose to rely on your own ways, your own thoughts. You, you did your own, uh, you did what you wanted to do. You, you brought to me your own understanding rather than trusting me. That's what Israel's doing here, and God's rejecting it. That's what Cain did, and God rejected it. And that's, that's why there's this question rising up where Paul's saying, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God wrong? To not choose works of the law is God wrong to have these Jews who are coming to him with so much sincerity, with, with their DNA connection to Abraham, with, with the claim that God, you made promises to Israel, and God saying, I don't accept that. The instinct for the Jews would be, well, that's not just, that's not right, that's not fair. But what does is, what is, uh, Paul reply with? He says, not at all. God's not unjust, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so basically Paul's saying, look, guys, God can choose the kind of people. He can choose who he wants to have mercy on. Okay, so here's, here's what's not unclear. Like, is it, is it unclear 
biblically who God has chosen to have mercy on. It's very clear, and I think it's very simple. And, and like Paul, the Bible kind of has a one-track mind. Those who God has mercy on are who? Well, it's those who have faith. It's those who have the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, we are saved by grace through faith. Grace comes through faith. Mercy comes through faith and believing God. That's just God's chosen way. That's God's chosen vessel of mercy, faith in Christ. Um, is, is the way through which God has chosen to extend his mercy. And so when he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion um, on whom I have compassion, what's not up in the air, what's not a mystery is who these people are. Um, and I think, um, again, I, I keep bringing up Calvinism and, and Reformed theology. I, I, I want to make clear I'm not doing this to be a bully or to pick on anybody um, or I'm trying to be respectful as I'm doing this, but I just want to make it, the contrast clear, and I want to help clarify, because I know when I, I read this stuff where my mind would go and how I could so quickly get off track and get off line from what Paul was actually arguing for. And so and so when he says here, you know, I'll, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion, basically Paul's saying, look, God, God can have mercy on who he wants. He gets to choose the category of people. He gets to choose who he gives mercy to. Um, and so I think in a reformed understanding, they would say, well, this is just, it's kind of a mystery. God just chooses. He has mysteriously chooses and does choose who he gives mercy to. We don't know who, we don't know why, we don't know why he gives mercy to who he gives mercy to, and we don't know why he withholds it from who, the people that he does withhold it from. We don't know why God gives some people compassion and chooses to elect them and, and save them, and we don't know why he withholds it. Uh, arguably, from the vast majority, he withholds his compassion from the vast majority of humanity, and, and rather than uh, displaying his love and kindness and grace, he's chosen to display um, on the majority of people his wrath. Um, I think, and I, I won't say that's the mindset of all uh, Calvinists or people who hold the Reformed theology, but I would say that the most popular teachers today are really the ones I want to give a reply and an alternative view to, and I think that's kind of the understanding that they would give here. And so what I'm saying is that they would ultimately say that this is a mystery, that, that who God chooses who God gives mercy to, who he gives compassion to, they'd say it's a mystery. I would say, no, it's it's just absolutely not. Um, the Bible doesn't leave that up to uh, to being a mystery. It's not a mystery. We see over and over again, both Old and New Testament, who God gives mercy to. It's, it's uh, though, you know, humble yourself and God will lift you up. It's those who humble themselves. It's those who believe. It's those who seek after God. Um, it's, it's the, uh, the poor in spirit, you know, going back to that, it's the weak, it's the foolish thing of the world. Um, and so, so we know that the category of people that, that, that God gives mercy to and gives compassion to is again, it's not a mystery. It's not in the dark as to who, what kind of people those are. Um, and I think that would stay in the same context and stay in the same track of thought that Paul's on that, okay, listen, guys, you're offended uh, he's saying this to the Jews. You're offended because I'm saying God's not giving you mercy or compassion because you're coming to him with works of the law and he's rejecting that and he's giving mercy to the Gentiles who are coming merely on the basis of faith and he's accepting that. And and I know Jews, you know, you're saying that's unjust, that's not fair, but look, God can show mercy to whoever he wants. He can choose, you know, he can he can select the kind of people, he can select who he wants to have mercy on and who he wants to have compassion on. And then, um, and, and so again, that's not left in the air. What Paul's arguing for is, and God has chosen, it's not a mystery who he's chosen to have mercy on or who he's chosen to have compassion on. Um, we just need to read the Bible and, and we'll see clearly who, what kind of people, what category of people, um, that is. And that's those, uh, with the faith of Abraham. And so, um, Paul's just saying he has that right to choose. He can choose whatever he wants and it's not a mystery as to what he has chosen, uh, that's been made clear. So then 16, he says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort. So that's another way of him saying it's not, it doesn't matter what works you're doing, all your law keeping, all your DNA connection to Abraham, all that, it doesn't get you anywhere because it does not depend on works, 
but it depends on God's mercy. This really is just Ephesians 2.9. This is another way that Paul's saying Ephesians 2.9, where he says, um, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. That is the gift of God. That salvation is a gift. It's a gift of God. It doesn't come by human desire or effort or willpower. Um, it doesn't, and so the contrast here um, is it doesn't come by human desire or effort, but it comes by faith. So it, it's not by works so that no one can boast. Um, so, so the contrast here is, is not that it's, it's not by works and faith. Uh, again, a reform position would say, well, f- you know, if, uh, when he says it's not by human desire or effort, or it's not by human will or effort, they would say, well, see there, it says it's not by human will. So it's not up to your free will to choose whether to believe God or not. And you're absolutely missing the point here if you go there, because what he's doing here is, again, he's doing the same thing he, he does in Ephesians 2.9, where he's contrasting, he's not contrasting uh, uh, works with uh, the work of faith with God's uh, unconditional election. He's contrasting works of the law with faith. And, and so faith is always described in biblical terms, it's always described as something that is in direct contrast with works. It's something that directly contrasts uh, human effort and and uh, willpower, with, like Paul's describing here. That faith is is the opposite of this. So when he says it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, I think you could rightly say it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on faith, which comes, th- uh, but on God's mercy, which comes through faith. So it's not about human desire and effort. It's not about us, what we, which is what the Jews were doing. They're bringing their sincerity, their efforts, and, and their, their willpower, which stands in direct contrast with faith. Um, to Human desire and effort here, All really what I'm trying to get across is this is not a synonym for faith, which is what a Reformed position, what a Reformed teacher would want to communicate here. And I, I just um, sincerely think that's just wrong. That's just that's just so mistaken. That is just so not the point that is being made here. But when he says it's not human desire, when he says it's not human desire or effort, um, he, that's not a, that's not a synonym for faith. You couldn't put in there and say, so it does not depend on a person's faith, but on God's mercy. That, that just absolutely would not make sense. What does make sense is that he's, again, he's staying on that same track and, and he's saying, therefore it does not depend Jews on your DNA connection to Abraham, on your law-keeping, on your sincerity of, of wanting my acceptance, of, of wanting God's acceptance, and, and being like Cain, you're bringing everything to God that you can you can give. You're sincere, you want God, you know, just like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and everybody else is sincere. Uh, that doesn't cut it, because it doesn't depend on that human desire and effort, but it depends on faith, right? It depends on being a child of promise. It depends on the faith of Abraham, that you're counted righteousness, righteous like Abraham. You're accredited that righteousness, not on the basis of human desire and effort, not on the basis of works of the law, but on God's mercy, which comes by faith, which we know by uh, so many scriptures in the New Testament. God's grace comes through faith. Faith is the, the doorway through which we, we attain God's mercy. And then in verse 17 of Romans 9, we'll finish it up here. Um, it says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So why does he bring up Pharaoh here? What's the purpose of bringing up Pharaoh at this point? Well, again, like we've said before, the Jews, not only are they cursed and separated from Christ at this point, the, the nation of Israel as a whole, it's, it's not receiving God's promises, and they're cut off from the Messiah, which is why they're offended and, and trying to figure out why that doesn't make God a liar. Not only that, but also they're being hardened and blinded so as to accomplish the salvation and, and mercy toward the Gentiles. And so what Paul does is he brings up an Old Testament example of where God does something very similar where he took a, an already hard and, and um, sinful, rebellious man. Okay, so if God didn't just grab Pharaoh and harden him in a vacuum. 
meaning that that um, that Pharaoh had already made some decisions. We can see um, there was there was already a lot of hardness and, and wickedness, you know, and and uh, and so I would challenge. Um, on this whole concept of hardening, of who God hardens, why he hardens. Again, going back to this concept, I don't think it's left a mystery in the Bible who God hardens and why he hardens people. If we look at Romans 1, is just a great example where it says when people harden themselves and they, they give up the knowledge of God that, that we all intuitively have, when you give that up and suppress it, that is when God gives us up. It's, it's, it's not before that. God doesn't give us up for the purpose of, of pushing us deeper and further into sin, but it's when we rebel against light he's giving us that eventually, you know, God is merciful and patient and gracious, and I believe he absolutely was with Pharaoh. That God waited and waited, and he, he gave opportunities to repent, not, not only, I think, during the, the 12 plague story, but before that, we have no idea what was happening. I think what we can see coming into the story is that Pharaoh had some issues, that he had a wicked heart. Um, and not in just a general sense that we all do, but, but there was, I think, some, some rebellion. Uh, I think a case could be made, basically, that Pharaoh had already been hardening his heart. And that's why God had chosen to use him as a vessel through which to bring the salvation of Israel, that he raised him up. He, he takes even, even sin, even when we choose to sin and rebel, like Israel did, they were choosing to rebel, and, and they had not accepted the Messiah. God had invited them to the wedding banquet, and he, he had sent his servants, and then ultimately he sent his son, and they killed him. Uh, they killed his, the son, and they didn't accept the invitation. And so now God is saying, okay, well, I'm going to invite the, the lame and the crippled and the, the weak and the poor, which sounds familiar to everything we've been saying, I think. Um, and so again, what, what, what he's saying is that... Um, that God has the right to choose to give mercy to who he wants, and he has the right to harden who he wants. And I think the Bible doesn't leave it a mystery who God wants to harden and who he uses for that purpose. Like Romans 1 says, it's those who harden themselves. And, and we see that in Isaiah. Um, we see the process of hardening, that so many of the verses that talk about, that speak of blindness, where God blinds Israel and hardens them, and, and he gives them ears so they don't hear, eyes so they don't see. A lot of those come from Isaiah. But if you start in the beginning of Isaiah and start reading through the condition that these people were in, when God did blind them and harden them and gave them up, uh, it becomes pretty clear why he did that. And it wasn't that God just, you know, these people were were... Um, you know, just ignorant and religious and, and trying to please God, but just not getting it right. And he just chose to harden them uh, again, just kind of out of nowhere. But they were rebelling. They were being given light. And over and over, it, you know, I think in the first couple chapters of Isaiah, somewhere he talks about them being like a vineyard. Uh, and he says, what else could I have done for you? I've done everything I could to cultivate you and to bring forth fruit. And you just keep producing sour grapes. What else could I do for you? And, and, and so, so that is the view of God that Scripture gives us of what it looks like when God hardens somebody. It's not like God just sent back and, and like, hmm, I, who do I want to harden and destroy and eternally uh, damn, you know? And, and uh, it doesn't look like that. What it looks like is, is God reaching out and giving light and, and extending his hand and offering an invitation of mercy. And there's a refusal over and over and over. And eventually God says, okay, um, I will grant you that refusal. And he withdraws his mercy, he withdraws his grace. He withdraws the conviction of the spirit. He withdraws whatever that looks like, which allows the natural hardening of the heart to take place. You know, I don't think hardening of the heart looks like God reaching in and grabbing the heart and forcing it into hardness. You know, the scriptures say God doesn't even tempt us into sin, let alone would he, you know, reach in and force our hearts into a sinful state. I think what hardening means, and, and you know, this is, a, this is kind of getting off topic. I think what hardening means is when God withdraws some of his mercy and grace and that restraining, uh, the, the restraining of his mercy and power and his spirit, whatever that looks like, I don't know what that, that is, but uh, I think he does that for everybody. And I think when we refuse him in specific determined ways over and over, he, he allows that, like Romans 1 shows us. And he gives us over it and he withdraws so that the natural tendency of the heart to harden and, and sin, the sinfulness that's already there, it, he just allows that to take a more powerful control of us. I think that's what he did with Pharaoh. 
Um, I think he just simply, because of who Pharaoh was, because of Pharaoh's rebellion, he, he said, okay, if that's who you are, I'm going to use you now for a vessel to bring about uh, the salvation of my people. And so he hardened Pharaoh in that way, in, in the sense in which he, I think he withdrew some of his mercy. He allowed Pharaoh's hardened heart to take more, more of a strong control over him so that he would continue to rebel and allow these plagues to, continually, to continue to come. And so what, what Paul's arguing for, why he brings up Pharaoh, is simply to say, look, God has the right to harden you guys. Um, you know, even though you're bringing all of your law keeping and your sincerity and your DNA connection, Abraham, still you refuse the offer of the scripture. You refuse the offer of, of, of Jesus. You refuse your Messiah. You refuse the invitation. And so God has the right to harden you if he wants, you know, why are you complaining now that, that, that God's hardening, hardening you? And yes, he is. He's giving you up. He's sovereignly allowing things and working things so that your sin is just, it's being allowed to increase. And, and your the natural tendency would be to just lash back at that and say, how is that fair? Um, kind of, again, going back to Cain and Abel, that's what Cain, Cain's kind of attitude of like, that's not fair. You know, how can you, you know, I'm bringing you my offering. I'm bringing you everything I've, I've got and, and I'm trying here and, and now you're going to refuse it, but you're accepting my brothers. And so it produces that, that murder and that hate in the heart. I, that's what happened to Cain. I think that's what's happening here to Israel is that, uh, that carnal, uh, that hate, that, that, uh, fleshliness uh, is just being stirred up by the truth that Paul's revealing here. So, so he raised up Pharaoh to display, uh, he says, display my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, again, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, I'm bringing this up. I don't want to attack. I just, I, th I think it's just there needs to be a distinction made between what is being prominently taught by Reformed theology today about this passage and what I believe Paul's actually getting at. Reformed theology, I think, here would say that it's a mystery. It's a mystery who God hardens. He simply has certain people that, for whatever mysterious reasons, um, he hardens them. Um, and for whatever mysterious reason, he has, uh, he has a certain group of people, you know, the elect, who he has mercy on. And... Um, and so my argument here is just that that's not a mystery in, in the Bible, that, that God hasn't left that a mystery. I think he's made it pretty clear over and over the category of people, the kind of people that receive his mercy and the kind of people that he hardens. Um, and, and the people that receive mercy are those who come to him on the basis of faith, um, and, and that's what connects them to the mercy of God. And those who persist in works of the flesh who persist in trying to come to God on the basis of self-righteousness, which ultimately is just unbelief, um, these people, God has the right to reject, no matter how sincere they are, no matter how, no matter if Abraham's your, your grandpa, you know, it doesn't get you anywhere before God. And that's what they were offended about. That's what the Jews were offended about. And, and not only will that not get you anywhere before God, but if you continue to persist in that and you don't accept God's way for us to, to enter into a relationship with him, then, then ultimately you might even be used as a, a, a you know, you might be blinded and hardened. He's going to give you up to stuff. Um, and it's just going to stir up more and more sin. You know, the law increases sin is what it says. He'll give you up to the law. Um, the law will increase sinfulness. Um, the more you try to, to do things on your own, the worse you're going to become. Um, and God has the right to do that. He has the right to give mercy to people on the basis of faith because that's what he's chosen. He could have chosen a different way. Um, he could have chosen uh, the ideas of Reformed theology. He could have done that. Um, I just think the Bible makes it clear that he did not. I just think there's nowhere in the scriptures that you see him making that, that sort of sovereign determination. And I think you definitely don't see it here in Romans 9. There's just no reason to go there if, unless we derail from Paul's line of reasoning because his focus is faith in Christ and salvation by grace through faith. God's sovereign right to choose faith, his sovereign right to reject works. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's what he's arguing for here. And we'll try to finish, hopefully, Romans 9 in the next video. Um, and again, uh, uh, if you want to listen to audio versions of this, you can go to 
greatlightstudios.com um, and then click on resources and you should be able to find some some links uh, go to the answering calvinism page and we're putting all these videos up but we do also have a podcast form which is a little weird because you have to listen to all the clicks and and all the stuff going on that's going on on the screen but you can't see it so um, but that is an option there is a podcast form you can find the, the answering calvinism podcast on um, basically anywhere right now that you could find podcasts. So Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, and pretty much anywhere else. And again, greatlightstudios.com. Um, click on resources and you can find um, all this stuff that we're putting out. So uh, we will continue making our way through Romans 9 in the next video. Mm-hmm.